mercy, for your goodness. God, we confess that you are uh, completely sovereign over all things, Lord, that you're perfectly committed to your glory and to your name and to your character. And God, as your people, we can rest in that. God, we know that nothing that we do here this morning um, in, in our singing and our preaching uh, in anything we do, Lord, is going to cause any kind of change apart from apart from an act on your behalf, Lord, apart from your spirit going out. And so we ask that you would do just that, Lord. We come, we come to your word hopeful and expectant that you'll do that work in us, changing our hearts from one degree of glory to the next. We hope in that. God, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. Everybody doing good this morning? Okay, good. Uh, turn to Romans 9 with me if you would, as we continue on preaching through the book of Romans. I don't know about you, to me it kind of feels like we're flying through this book. Some of you may be like, what in the world is he talking about? But I can't believe we're already in the middle of Romans 9 here. Uh, one of the, the pastor, I was just thinking this a second ago, the pastor at uh, a church we went to when I was in school, uh, literally every single Sunday after they finished worship, worship, he would just come on the stage and, uh, and look at us with just kind of this blank look and, and say, are you ready to rumble? <laughs> I feel like that is an appropriate question for us this morning as we get to Romans 9 and look at verses 17 to 24. And so join me there, uh, jo- join there with me if you would. I'm going to read starting in verse 17 here. It reads, for the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I might display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he, talking about God, has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who, who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, wanting to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Uh, I recently finished reading um, Andre Agassi's autobiography memoir um, called, called Open. If you're not familiar with him, he's, he's widely regarded as one of the greatest professional tennis players to ever play. And in this memoir, he, he tells a lot about um, just his, his upbringing and specifically a lot about his father who trained him and really uh, created in him this master class tennis player who would go on to, to win majors and earn millions and millions of dollars. But that all started with this crazy, psycho, obsessed dad who drove his child to his limits day after day after day after day all throughout his childhood. And Andre talks a lot about this in his book, how he didn't even really 
uh, like tennis, not so much because of the sport itself, but because of the overwhelming pressure and the intensity and just the magnitude of the, the expectations that his father put on him at such a young age. His dad was absolutely committed to creating the best tennis player to ever live, and he actually came pretty close to doing that. Uh, but at one point late in the book, it honestly is probably my favorite part, uh, he describes a moment in which his father meets the father of his future wife, then girlfriend, whose name is Steffi Graf. Now, uh, I don't know if you know the name Steffi Graf, but what's significant about Steffi Graf is that she is arguably the greatest women's tennis player to ever play. And guess what problem she shares with her now love interest, Andre? Daddy issues. Her father, it turns out, was just as crazy about shaping his daughter into an elite tennis player. He also had specific things that he taught her, things that he made her practice for hours on hours every day, pushed her to her limits from an early age, and like Andre's father, largely succeeded in his goals the entire time. But the intensity of these two men came to a competitive peak when they were set to meet for the first time. Uh, Andre, he tells the story in his book of the meeting at the house that he grew up in in Las Vegas, and uh, Steffi's father immediately wanting to go out to see his father's famous tennis machine that he had trained Andre on as a young boy. This was a well-known thing by now in the tennis community because of all of Andre's success. And so they go out to see the machine out in the backyard. And, uh, and this interaction, it begins very um, positively with kind of a lot of admiration over this machine and what it can do. Uh, but it soon turns to conflict when Steffi's father suggests to Andre's father that he should have taught Andre the famous slice shot that he taught his daughter Steffi. Well, Andre's father, of course, he takes exception to that, and he, he responds by pointing out how weak that shot is and how Steffi never had the strong backhand that Andre had. And this doesn't go over well at all, as you can imagine. The two men are now arguing about whose child was a better player and pointing out the failures of each other and how they formed their child's tennis game. Two all-time greats, by the way. Keep that in mind. And this exchange, it goes back and forth, elevating quickly more and more with each exchange until, I kid you not, it's almost hard to believe, these two old men <laughs> whose children are two of the greatest athletes to ever play their sport, who are now in love with each other, planning to get married. Their fathers are found cursing at one another, threatening to fight each other, eventually ending up with their shirts off, fists squared, ready for a physical altercation of the highest degree. <laughs> True story. Each one more committed to their own pride, completely unwilling to let the other neglect the glory and the honor that they feel they deserve. I tell you this story because the question for all of us this morning as we go through Romans 9 is whose glory are we going to be committed to? Theologians have commented that nowhere in the Bible maybe have people more often inserted their own wisdom and preferences onto the text than where we are here in Romans 9 this morning. And what we have to do up front this morning is just make abundantly clear that the reason for that is that in our flesh lies an absolute commitment, whether it's conscious or subconscious, an absolute commitment not to the glory of God, but to the glory of ourselves. 
hear me now, we, we, <laughs> we have to say this. If you're committed to your own glory more than God's, then everything Romans 9 has to say to you is going to feel wrong. It's going to feel gross. It's going to feel unjust. It's going to very much be in your face. You won't be able to accept it. You're going to bristle against it until you have no choice but, su- but to submit or to fight it with everything that you can muster up. And the reason for that, <laughs> hear me, the reason for that is that Romans 9 is not committed to your glory. It's committed to God's glory. And if you come to it committed to your glory more than God's, the end result, it's not going to be just some sort of nice cordial agreement to disagree. You're going to end up in a shirts off fist-squared showdown with God's Word, because what you're after is diametrically opposed to what the Bible's after. This conflict that we, that we have with the Bible, with God's glory and our glory, it's presented in our text this morning in Romans 9 with this, with this simple, somewhat, question, which is this, is God just to elect some for salvation and to pass over others in judgment? Is God just to not only choose some for salvation, but to also pass over others? And, and let me just give you the answer up front. This is what we're going to argue for, that yes, God is just in doing so, because he does both for the supreme good of his own glory. God is just to choose some for salvation, and to pass over others because he does both for the good of his own glory. And so we'll first talk about the way in which he, he, he does elect some for salvation and how he passes over others, what that looks like. And then we'll discuss this question of whether or not God, God is, is just in doing so. This idea that God, in his mercy, chooses some for salvation and that he passes over others, it's coming uh, right out of verse 18 here, where Paul writes, So then... He, God, shows mercy to those he wants to, and he hardens those he wants to harden. Uh, The idea of God um, choosing some for salvation, it's what we spent a lot of time talking about uh, last week where Paul, he argues strongly for God's sovereign election, not based on anything that we do, but solely based on his purposes in election. This is somewhat summarized then in verses 15 and 16 with the quotation of God telling Moses in Exodus that he's going to He's going to have compassion and mercy on whomever he wills. And then Paul's interpretation of that in verse 16 is this. So then it, talking about salvation, does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. You you can't do anything to be saved, and election is not based on anything that you do or anything that you will do at any point. This, of course, though, it raises... It raises questions. It raises questions not just for those who are chosen to be saved, but for those who are not chosen to be saved. And this is what Paul begins to speak on in verse 17 here, on the heels of his conclusion that God's election is not based on any human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. He says this, he says, For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I might display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And so then... Another conclusion, this is more interpretation from Paul. He, God, shows mercy to those he wants to. Again, similar to what he's, he's already just said in verse 16. But now he adds this, and he hardens those he wants to harden. 
And so just follow the logic of the text here. God's demonstration of mercy on some, it doesn't, it doesn't depend on any human will or effort. It's not based on them doing anything good or bad, just like Jacob and Esau. Remember that, remember that example? It's based on God's his own free choice in accordance with his own sovereign purposes. And in the same way, God's hardening of sinners, whatever that is, we're, we're going we're gonna to attempt to define that and talk about that here in a second. But it's according to his own free choice, according to his own sovereign purposes. Now some will make arguments here on these doctrines about how God uh, chooses some and passes over, that, that, he, that he doesn't actually freely choose some and pass over others. He, he simply uh, looks ahead before the beginning of time. He, he sees uh, who will believe and not believe in their own free will. And then it's in that sense that he uh, elects or predestines them. But understand that 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 position has been rightly refuted as heresy because it undermines the sovereignty of God by putting that ultimate free act in salvation in the hands of the people, not of God. And that's simply not what the Bible is describing here. It's, It's God's complete sovereignty. And God's free choice according to his purposes, which again we'll define and discuss, that elects to save some and pass over others. Now, before, before we keep going, let's stop and talk about uh, what this hardening of sinners means and how the Bible portrays it. Systematically, when we talk about this in the framework of uh, ultimate salvation or judgment, uh, the word that we use to talk about this is reprobation. Reprobation. Some of you may have probably heard that term before. Some of you maybe not. It's sort of the uh, other side of election in which God, he sovereignly chooses to save sinners out of his mercy. But this would deal with the other side of that, which is the idea that he doesn't choose to save everyone. Uh, I'm actually going to, do you guys have the slide? Um, good. We have a definition here. I'm going to put up here for a little bit as we, as we talk about this. I think this is a, a, a helpful working definition of reprobation. Let me just read this. Uh, It's the sovereign decision of God to, in sorrow, pass over some people, deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins as a manifestation of his justice. Let me just read that again. Reprobation. We're saying that that is the sovereign decision of God to in sorrow pass over some people, deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins as a manifestation of his justice. Now, <laughs> now, 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 let me just say, I know, I feel you, I hear, I hear the objections and the questions. I feel them the same. So does Paul, by the way, because he's going to answer them, but I'm with you. We're going to get through this together this morning. Let's talk about a few things that should stick out here with what we're saying. One, uh, notice the language that is used to um, describe this act of God and what we're saying about the way that he acts towards the elect and the non-elect. God sovereignly chooses some, that's what we've said election is, and God passes over others. That's the language that we're using to describe, again, what the other side of his election is, the fact that he doesn't choose everyone. What does this mean? What does it what does it look like? Well, the illustration and the support given here by Paul is that of Pharaoh. If you remember the story of Pharaoh in the Exodus, the Lord had commanded Pharaoh to let his people go out of Egypt so that they could come worship Yahweh. But very early on in Exodus 4, verse 21, before 
the whole Exodus narrative really even starts to go down. God says to Moses, but I will harden his, Pharaoh's heart, so that he won't let the people go. And so God's going to harden his heart so that he does not obey him. But then when we actually read through the story, we see something very interesting in that when the author describes Pharaoh's heart being hardened, it's not always by God. It's also by Pharaoh. And in fact, I, I think it's also significant that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, it's first done by Pharaoh's, Pharaoh himself in the story. Uh, Exodus 7, verse 13, Exodus 7, 22, 8, 15, 8, 19, 8, 32, 9, 7. They all talk about Pharaoh hardening his own heart or Pharaoh's heart being hardened. And only then, after all of those, does it say in verse 10, 22, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, I don't, I don't think we want to make too much of that feature uh, in the story, but I do think that we can say this, that it's very, 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 very clear <laughs> that Pharaoh's heart doesn't really need any help being hardened against God. It is perfectly capable of doing that all on its own. And so does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. But does Pharaoh also harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. The story says both. But the question then, of course, is what's the, what's the relationship between those two things happening and how do, they actually, how do they actually go together? I think what's happening here is not so much this idea of God creating or putting into Pharaoh a hardness or a rebelliousness against him. Rather, it's God allowing him to proceed in his hardness and rebellion that's already there. Are you following me on this? We can think about it like this. God does not change anybody. He doesn't act on anybody to change them from saints into sinners <laughs> or even from neutral into sinners. God only changes people from sinners to saints. You follow me? The starting point for everybody is one of death. We are all born on the train tracks of sin and of separation from God, tracks that are headed towards death, if you will. And God's sovereign election to save sinners, it's an act of mercy on the part of God to take us off of the train tracks of death and put us onto the train tracks of life. And it's only by the work of God that that's possible. And what we're saying here is that this, this passing over others, it's simply the reflex of that action. It's to say that he has not chosen everybody. He has not chosen to transfer everybody from one set of tracks to the other. He's not actively putting them there. They're already there. But he's not removing them either. This is the same theology that Paul communicates in Romans 1, by the way. God's, God's judgment is that he simply delivers them over to their own sinful desires. It's not that he actively puts it inside of them. He passively removes himself and he lets them proceed on in their sinful ways. That's Romans 1, 24 and 26, and that's how God's judgment is described in the Bible. He simply lets us proceed on the train tracks of death to see its ultimate end. This is significant in, the, in this conversation because others will object to God's total sovereignty and salvation by saying that if he, if he really does choose some, well, doesn't that make him the author of sin and those that he doesn't choose? Uh, if God doesn't choose them and they have no opportunity to come to him because God didn't choose them, then does that not ultimately make God at fault for their sin 
and rebellion. And quite simply, that's just not the way the Bible talks about these things. We, we punched earlier at the, the heresy of saying that God does not actually freely choose people. He simply chooses those who will choose him and how that undermines God's sovereignty. But don't now err on the other side here. <laughs> By maybe overemphasizing God's sovereignty in a way that the Bible does not and making God the author of sin or responsible for our rebellion. The, the Bible is abundantly clear that God is both sovereign in his choice to save some and not save others, and it's abundantly clear that people are 100% responsible for their own sin and rebellion against him, that God is not the author of sin, and he's not responsible for humanity's rebellion against him. This should cause us to respond, Christian, not an accusation against God, but in a deep, profound thankfulness for God's mercy on our behalf. Understand, God did not have to save you. The only difference, hear me on this, the only difference between Pharaoh and Israel was that God sovereignly chose Israel to be set apart as his people, as the means by which he would bring salvation to the world. And he sovereignly chose to allow Pharaoh to continue to oppose him. And please understand that the very same is true of you and me this morning. And so let your posture before God be not one of, of confusion or accusation against him in this, but of, of putting your face in the sand, of beating our breast in complete and utter dependence on the mercy and the grace of God, because it is only by his mercy that we will be saved. That's all we have. A second thing to take note of here is that God passes over sinners, not in his joy, but in his sorrow. This statement is not directly out of our text, and so we're not going to spend a ton of time on it, but it is, it is relevant and I think important to mention theologically with what we're talking about. Um, and, and it is also very relevant for where we're going to go this morning. Um, the Bible is, is, again, abundantly clear we're not going to back down on this this morning. It teaches that God, he chooses to save some and he chooses not to save others. But at the same time, you have to understand this. At the same time, it is abundantly clear that God genuinely desires for all to come to him in repentance. And that while he delights in the salvation of sinners, he does not delight in the judgment of the wicked, even though he chooses to pass over them, resulting in their impending judgment. Where do we see this? I think just a few places here quickly, if we could. Uh, in Ezekiel 18, verse 32, God says, For I take no pleasure in anyone's death, so repent and live. Ezekiel 33, verse 11, Tell them, as I live, the declaration of the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his ways and live. 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, God wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter, verse 3, sorry, chapter 3, verse 9, says the Lord does not delay his promise, which is talking about his, his coming judgment here. He does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Now again, I hear the objections, I'm with you, I understand 
If God genuinely desires for all to come to repentance, and this is actually how salvation works, that it's by his free choice, well then why would God not just choose to save everybody? Why would he pass over anyone if he's sovereign and if he genuinely wants everyone to come to him? How can those things both be true? And I would just simply ask back, what if there's a greater good that God is acting towards? Remember, God is just to elect some for salvation and to pass over others because he does both for the supreme good of his own glory. Not the glory of mankind, not the glory of you and me, not the glory of any of us, for the supreme good of his own glory. And the question we are then faced with in our theology is whose glory are we going to be committed to? We have to be extremely careful in our, in our questioning of these things, not to allow our desire for our own glory begin to usurp the supreme good of God's own glory. We'll talk about how God's passing over sinners contributes to this demonstration of his glory, but for now, let's just, let's just deal with this tension of why God would do something that ends up resulting in something that he doesn't want. And the answer is because there's a greater good that he's working for. I'm not saying that they're... Uh, apples to apples, but, but we, have, we have categories for this, and I think on some level we can at least begin to understand how these things can be resolved. Um, two of my brothers now have joined the military. One of them actually just finished up basic training in the Air Force. He's in school there, sort of class this week. Um, but but if, you, if you ask them, uh, I would not expect that either one of my brothers really want to, at some point down the road, serve the fullest extent of the commitment that they've made to sacrifice more and more and more and everything that comes with that. I, no, I, I, don't, I don't think anyone just wants that in and of itself. But there's a greater good and a greater purpose that they're committed to, and so they'll willingly do it if that's what's required. This is not unlike Christ on the cross, by the way. When we read the, the, the passion narratives, we see Jesus, fully God, in the moments leading up to his death, not wanting emotionally to walk the path that he knows is set before him. <laughs> He's asking God, pleading with him in the garden, if there's any other way. But, but in the very same breath, he submits to the Father's will, and then he goes on to pay the ultimate sacrifice in perfect obedience. Why? Because there's a greater purpose that he's committed to. And so friends, when we're faced with this tension, and, and we have two ideas that, that seem to not be able to logically coincide in our brains, that God would both desire that every person would come to him in faith, yet at the same time pass over some before the creation of the world, and we can't understand how that can be possible, we once again have to look to Christ, in whom God has supremely revealed himself. We have to look at Christ on the cross, where God has supremely revealed himself, where mercy and justice meet, where we see a picture of God acting in a way that, that pains him and grieves him, yet pleases him at the same time because it serves the greatest purpose that there is, the glory of God. This leads right into what we said to start, that the the driving question with all of this is, is, is God just in doing this? Is he just 
in his sovereign choosing of some and his passing over others. As we've already answered, the text says that God is just in doing so because he does both for the supreme good of his own glory. The specific question of God's justice, it was raised in your text last week in verse 14, uh, but, but it sort of hangs over all of this, right? In our text, it's raised in verse 19 on the heels of God, showing mercy to those he wants to and hardening those he wants to. The way it's phrased here is, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, if it's God's choosing not to save some, then how can God find fault with them and judge them for it when it's presumably his fault and not ultimately theirs? Paul goes on to answer this question in two ways. He does provide some rationale and some reasoning for this, but but not right away. The first answer Paul gives to this question is in verse 20 where he writes, Who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Well, what does form say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Now, Again, Paul, he's going to go on and give some rationale for how this all makes sense. But before he even begins to attempt to explain it, this is what he says. Who are you, a mere man, to even ask the question? <laughs> Don't miss what is happening right here in this verse, friends. If you're, if you're asking that question on the heels of what we've just said, if you're questioning if God is just to do so and how he can still find fault with anyone if behind it all is his sovereign will and choice, Paul's taking a moment to smack you right now. I'm just saying, it's not me, it's Paul. I'm just delivering the message here. Don't get upset with me. This is a true check yourself before you wreck yourself moment here that we can't gloss over too quickly. And we're once again faced with this question, whose glory are we going to be committed to? Hear me, part of what we have to understand in this conversation and really in any conversation around uh, who God is and how he's chosen to work in the world, is that there's a great chasm between us and God that we cannot cross, that prevents us from understanding him fully and perfectly. There's a, there's a distinction between the creator, God, and the creature, everyone and everything else. And we have to approach God and we have to ask questions of God with the proper posture towards him, which is the creature to our creator. Or as Paul puts it in verse 21, we are the clay and he is the potter. He's the one who forms us for his use and for his purpose, not for ours. And as creatures, we, we have to be willing and humble enough to confess that in the divine economy of our understanding, it's extremely limited. Part of our problem and trying to understand all of this and where we go wrong in different ways is, is we don't understand who we are in light of who God is. We arrogantly assess and, and define our identity by assigning to ourselves a sovereignty that we do not possess, that only God possesses. We, we identify ourselves by our own free choices, we believe, and we feel that we've been violated when the Bible then steps on our toes and undermines our ultimate freedom. But the Bible does not define us that way. In fact, the Bible really does not define us as a people, as a race, just meaning all of humanity, by describing us in the context of ourselves to begin with. The Bible identifies us in the way that we relate to another person, namely God. We are made in His image, Genesis 1 says. When we're saved, we are said to be in Christ. Our identity now rooted in our relationship to Jesus. 
And so when we look at ourselves rightly in light of who God is, we see that we, we really have no right to question anything that he does. Yet here we often are, not only, not only questioning God, but objecting to his very nature based on our finite and limited understanding of God's world and how it works. Do you understand this? <laughs> I would imagine it's similar to having your three-year-old child put his hand over your mouth and say, don't say that, Daddy. Now, I'm not saying that's ever happened to me. I'm not saying I know that that's exactly, I know exactly what, that, what that feels like. I'm not saying it hasn't happened either. I'm just saying from a human perspective, I'd imagine that that has to feel similar. And none of this is to say that our questions don't matter, that they should not be engaged with, but it is to say, first and foremost, that there's a way in which our questions need to be asked and a manner in which they need to be engaged that is covered in this humble understanding that we are creature and God is creator. And because that reality is true, we understand from the outset that God does not owe us all the answers that we may try to demand of him. Friends, this, this, this reality right here, in all honesty, may be as important, if not more important, for you to walk away with understanding and internalizing as the deep, complicated, important doctrines of election and reprobation that we're discussing. And honestly, let me just, let me just double down on that while I'm at it. Uh, you will not, because you cannot, understand the way the Bible talks about God's purpose in election if you do not first understand your smallness before God. Otherwise, you, you, have, you have no choice but to see God as a rival to your own glory. And I just want to plead with you here in this moment, as Paul does. Don't be that person who ends up, shirts off, knuckles up, ready to throw down with God because he will not submit to you. So much bad theology and bad thinking about God is a result of man not being able to get themselves out of the center of it. And this creator-creature distinction, it's why we have to, at some point, to some degree, be okay with some tension in our theology. We can't feel the need to explain away philosophically and logically exactly how everything works so that it fits nice and pretty in our minds. We need to let the Bible speak as God's word. We need to let it say what it says. And we need to be committed to letting God be God and us be us. But just as, just, just as importantly as we need to understand what Paul's doing with this little kind of slap here, we also need to see that it's not where he leaves us. Again, in his grace, God does not just leave us with a stiff arm here in Romans 9, although he rightly could as the creator of all things. No, he once again graciously comes down to explain himself. There's rationale given. And it may or may not be the answer that we want to hear in our flesh, but it is what God gives us. Now, Paul goes on to argue that the reason that God does this, saves some in mercy, passes over others, the reason he does both of those things is for the supreme good of his own glory. Verse 21 and following. Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? He's just referring to those he's going to save and those he's not going to save there. 22. And what if God, desiring to display his wrath and to make his power known, and so that's the motivation here, display his wrath, make his power known, 
endured with much patience objects of wrath ready for destruction. But why then does he want to do this? What purpose is there in displaying his wrath and his power? Paul goes on, verse 23. And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory? These statements, they're, uh, they're phrased like questions, but they're rhetorical, and they're really answering the questions that are being raised all throughout. Paul's theology on the reason why God chooses to make some pieces of pottery for honor is the same reason he chooses to make some for honor, to ultimately contribute to the display of the riches of his glory on objects of mercy. So again, let's try to just follow the flow of thought here. The riches of God's glory are displayed upon the objects of mercy, the people that he saves. And there's a way in which the manifestation of his judgment and the demonstration of his power on objects of wrath contributes to him demonstrating his glory on objects of mercy. Are you following me on this? When Moses asked to see God's glory in Exodus 33, God says that he's going to show him his goodness and tell him his name. And the way that he begins describing himself is the text that was quoted in last week's sermon text. It's how he's going to show mercy and compassion on whom he wills. That's God's glory made manifest to us. It's that he saves sinners. And that's in essence how he chooses to begin describing who he is. But understand, it's not detached from his judgment on sin. Even in Exodus 34, when God's glory actually passes by Moses in the form of his backside because he can't see God's face and live, he says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And so these two things, God's mercy and his judgment, they are connected because a good, just, holy God has to get angry at sin and rebellion against him. And in the judgment of sin on some, the riches of his mercy and his grace on others are heightened that much more. God's mercy and his wrath, they're both, they're both real realities. They're both true of God, but they're not equally ultimate. One serves the revelation of the other. Remember, God raises Pharaoh up and he hardens his heart for what reason? <laughs> so that my name will be proclaimed in all the earth. God's judgment of sin, it exists so that the world would see more clearly the gravity of their sin and as a result, see more clearly the abundant riches of his grace and his mercy to save sinners. If you're struggling to see how God's love and wrath relate to one another, where do you look? You all should know better than to ask me that. By now, we look at the cross. We are people of the cross. We look at the cross again and again and again and again. And when we look to the cross, we see Jesus taking on the full extent of the wrath of God for all of humanity. But we see it as the greatest demonstration of God's love that he's poured out for us. The magnitude of God's mercy on the cross is lost if we don't see it paired with his righteous and just punishment for the sin that we're guilty of being poured out on Christ. In the divine courtroom of God, he acts as the judge, jury, and prosecution. He brings the case against us on his terms 
and makes the right verdict of guilty. That says justice. Guilty is charged. And what's the penalty? It's death. But then when it's time for us to pay up, what does he do? He sends his son down to earth to take on our form and to pay the penalty for our offense so that we can be pardoned from our guilty uh, sentence simply by trusting in him. That's mercy. And that's what the cross shows us. It's how God's mercy and his justice meet. I think oftentimes we get into trouble when we flip the order around. We don't talk about God's judgment of sinners as highlighting God's abundant goodness to save others. The way we often think about these things is the fact that God chooses to save only some, and somehow that elevates and makes more evident his abundant injustice, his abundant unfairness, his abundant cruelty in passing over others for judgment. Do you understand the difference here? Friends, part of what we have to be committed to when we talk about salvation is protecting the language of salvation. Protecting the way that the Bible describes the character of God. This whole conversation about God's election is not framed in the Bible by these philosophical dilemmas that we've come up with around God and the problem of evil or things that we think are contradictory in the character of God. That's not how the Bible talks about it. It's not talked about as something to be explained away or something that we have to figure out how to get around in our theology. It's not talked about as something we need to apologize for on behalf of God. It's framed as something that is fundamentally demonstrating God's love towards sinners. It's framed as something that speaks to his complete sovereignty over all creation. It's portrayed as something that reveals his immense mercy and his grace and the power of his judgment reveals the wickedness of sin so that his mercy and grace and love would be further magnified. And so our philosophical questions and even some of our our systematic theology, they're important things to deal with, but they can't be the starting point. We can't start this conversation by assuming our own framework. We have to start the conversation by seeing how the Bible talks talks about these things. Or else we let the language of salvation that, again, speaks to God's mercy and his love, get hijacked. And and things like election and predestination, these terms that the Bible uses to describe these merciful acts of God, they instead become about God's unfairness and his hatred of sinners, not his love. They become about his lack of justice, not his perfect righteousness. We have to be willing to concede that maybe the function of the Bible isn't to give us clarity on the questions we want to ask, but rather to create a venue in which we really do go to the mat with God and wrestle Him with our deepest questions. And what we discover when we do that is not a pretty little systematic answer. What we discover is a portrait of God's character. When we see the picture of God's character clearly, what we see is a God perfectly committed to the glory of his own name. A God who is completely sovereign over all things. A God who acts freely according to his purposes. 
And we then have to be humble enough to accept everything that that means for us. I know that these ideas uh, and these, these doctrines are hard. <laughs> They're dense. They make your head hurt sometimes. They leave us with a lot of emotions to deal with and a lot of questions that we have to wrestle with deeply within our souls. But I think part of what we're also left with in this conversation is the question of, what do I do with this now? And we'll begin to land the plane with this and move into the, the end of our service. We're going to uh, finish with communion today, actually, and so we're going to transition to that as we wrap this up here. But let's just stop for a moment and consider not just what the right thinking is about this, as important as that is, but also what's the right application of it. That's what a lot of Romans 10 is going to be about looking forward. It's, it's how do we respond and apply these truths in Romans 9. And so let me just say, let me just say four things right now. We'll do, it, we'll do it quick. First, for the unbeliever who may be in the room this morning, you may be hearing all this wondering, what in the world does this mean for me? <laughs> the answer here is quite simple, to be honest with you. There's there's one response, and it's to cry out to God in faith. That's it. The word is being preached to you this morning, right now, in this moment. And the Bible says that the Spirit goes out with his word, and so this is the moment for salvation. You don't have to sit and wonder if God has chosen you or if he hasn't chosen you. The Bible doesn't ask you to do that in response to this teaching. The Bible demands one thing of you, that you would cry out to God in faith, I promise you, I promise you, if you do that by his spirit, he will save you from your sin right now. Second, for the believer, we rest our head on the pillow of election. If we dig deep enough into the truth of God's election, eventually, eventually we get to the fact that God is completely sovereign over all things and that he's completely committed to his own glory and his own character and because of that there's no wondering for us what's going to end up happening to us God will not violate his character by letting us go he will certainly see us through to the end and we can rest in that third that we would respond by taking the gospel out through the proclamation of the gospel and in prayer I bring this up specifically to discuss uh, a little bit to you the calling that our church is putting on putting on you as, as uh, partners here at Mercy Hill, like Matt mentioned to start, uh, to a time of prayer and fasting over these next few weeks. This is one practical way to respond faithfully to what you've heard this morning about the sovereignty of God over salvation. Uh, as you've probably heard uh, in our announcements the last few weeks, I know there's a handout in the bulletin even, um, we're going to be doing 21 days, three weeks of prayer and fasting, and uh, Everybody who's a part of our church, we're calling you all to join with us in some capacity. Now, a couple things on this specifically. Uh, one, there's a lot of freedom in how you choose to do this, okay? Uh, the idea is that you would fast in some capacity, whether that's uh, just one meal every day, two meals a day, one meal every, you know, I don't know, four days a week, whatever it is. Nobody's going to come around checking up on you, okay? So, so you have freedom in that. But the idea is that you would fast in some capacity, and then during that time that you would normally spend eating, you spend in prayer. 
the idea here is not that this is a uh, hunger strike on God uh, to show him how serious you are or, or a way that we have to manipulate him somehow into giving us what we ask. It's just a way of taking focused time to petition for God to do his work. And so we'll be doing that over the next few weeks. A second thing to mention here is that the emphasis of this prayer time and this fasting, it should be on God to do the very thing that we've been talking about today, which is just drawing sinners to himself. For us to confess God's sovereignty, understand this, in all things, is to say that it's only by a work of God that a sinner can come to repentance. And so we ask him to just keep doing that. We ask him to use us to do that in our in our communities, in our homes, in our families, the people that we, we work with, our workplaces, and in our church. And a reason for this, it is the need for a new uh, building location for our Berlin campus out east. That's a need that we have that we're, that we're taking to God and all of this. But please understand in that, that if you're only praying for a new building, you're missing the point. The, the building and the physical space that we use, it, it's just a tool Right? It's just a means for us to keep faithfully doing the work that God has called us to do as a church, which is just to preach the gospel, to disciple people. It's everything that we do as a, as a church family. But if God is not first working in the lives of people through us as his people, there's no need for a building to begin with. And so during these next few weeks, we're, we're just asking that God would keep doing that, that he would keep moving mightily in our communities through the people that we rub shoulders with and, and, and the people already inside of our church, that he would do that through us and that he would provide a building location to us so that we can keep doing those very things. And finally, this is the last thing that we'll say. What do we do with everything that we've just said? We treasure the beauty of the cross. There's many things that the Bible teaches, I think, that we have a hard time understanding how they all kind of fit together but that God reconciles for us in the cross of Christ. The cross, again, it's where God's, his perfect justice, and his perfect mercy, they meet. It's where God's love and his wrath are illustrated for us. On the cross, Jesus, he pays the penalty for sin, taking on the full wrath of God for us all. And in that demonstration of wrath, God displays the richness of his love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, making a way for us to be saved. And one way we treasure the cross is by doing what we're going to do in just a moment, which is by taking communion. So if I could have the worship team begin to come up as we, as we transition. It's by taking his blood, partaking in his body as a means of remembering what Christ did for us. The purpose of this, it's both to look back on that merciful act of God to some, save some people in his grace and to make a way for us to be in fellowship with us, but it's also a means of, of pointing us forward, right? Forward to that glorious day when Christ, he comes back and he gathers all of his people up with him together one perfect time. And what are we going to do there in that moment? We're going to participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of God's people gathered together one day in perfect peace, rejoicing in his mercy to us. It is in that sense that we believe that this partaking of the bread and the cup that we're going to do, it is, it is for God's people, specifically those who have trusted in Christ and are part of his people. If you've not come to Christ in faith, understand this isn't going to do 
anything to save you. It won't do anything to get you closer to God somehow. But it is a testimony of what's available to you in faith, which is participation in the life of Christ. It's an act of remembering for God's people on what he's already done for our behalf for all those who have trusted in him. So if we could go ahead and have those who are helping with communion come up. Uh, We see Christ initiate this ordinance. Uh, Matthew 26, where it says, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, gave it to the disciples, and he said this, Take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many on the forgiveness of sins. And so as we take this, we remember the great sacrifice that Christ prayed, and we look forward to the perfect realization of what he secured for us through that. Uh, just some instructions in this uh, as, we, as we do it. If you guys could, um, we'll have everybody come up on this side to my left. Um, you'll pass right through the, through, through the table here, and then if you exit over to my right, um, and then you'll be free to uh, take that on your own with your family, with whoever's sitting around you, uh, you take it on your own there, um, and then we will uh, we'll finish in one last worship song. We'll close, um, but let me pray for us, and then uh, and then please come up as you feel led. Uh, Father, again, we just thank you for your grace to us, God. We thank you for your sovereign mercy that it does not depend on anything that we have to do. God, we thank you that uh, you've revealed yourself to us in your Son. God, that you sent him to pay the penalty for our sins, and God, simply by trusting in you, we can, we can be redeemed. Um, Lord, help us not to miss the significance of what we're about to do, Lord, uh, that it would not become uh, just a, a, a individualized, personal act that somehow makes us feel good for some reason, Lord. Help us to, to understand what you've done for us, Lord, but also to continue looking forward to the hope that we have in you that you have that you've kept for us. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.